Hi there, it's me, Cheryl Richardson, and I'm here for our weekly Facebook Live session. So I'm looking forward to talking with you for a little bit and taking some of your questions and maybe offering you some coaching. So I'll wait for some of you to join and feel free to announce yourself. Let me know who you are and where you're from. It's always great to see where people are visiting from. Hi, Chris. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. Hi, Jerry. Welcome. I'm feeling so much better. Yes, I ended up with the flu last week and um, completely unexpected and just horrible. <laughs> I felt like I was hit by a Mack truck. It was one of those kinds of being sick where um, you sort of lay on the sofa, you feel horrible, and at one point I just started crying and I said to Michael, I just want my mother. <laughs> that kind of sick where you just, you want like a mom, you know? So, um, but I'm so much better. I'm back to myself and I'm really, really glad about that because it wasn't pretty. Um, let's see. Hi, Monica and Maja. Welcome. Welcome. Glad you're here. And Teresa, welcome. Josie and Kim, welcome. Hi, Kathy and Joel. Welcome. Suzanne from Nova Scotia. You know, um, this past year we did, uh, we had a genealogy book done for my mom and um, we discovered that my mother's ancestors are from Nova Scotia, which might be why I've been so drawn to visit there. And I'm looking forward to doing that at some point. So um, keep, I'll keep you posted, Suzanne. Maybe we could have tea. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. I appreciate that. Hi, Julie and Grace. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad I'm feeling better, too. Um, hi, David. I'm glad you're here. And... Um, David says, speak, write, promote, changed my life, and you played a huge part. Well, you're very welcome, and I'm glad. Uh, we'll be doing this, Reed, Reed Tracy and I do the speak, write, and promote workshop every year, and we'll be doing it this year in Boulder, Colorado, so I'm looking forward to that. I love Boulder. So, um, hi, Lisa. Welcome. I'm glad you're here, and Joanne from Toronto. Hi, Heather, and Lorraine, and Elena. Welcome. And, um, boy, I can't say this word. Hello, Duanjani. Duanjani, I hope I said that okay. Um, hi, Emily and Susan and Debbie. Welcome, Suzette. Um, and Julie. Um, yeah, I'm glad you're here, Julie. I've missed you, too. You haven't been here for a few weeks. Jasmine and Carolyn, welcome. Um, so I am here in Massachusetts. I'm in uh, the northern part of... Massachusetts, right below the New Hampshire and Maine border. I'm very close to both. And it's springtime here. It's really beautiful. Uh, the sun finally came out this afternoon. The lilacs have gone by and the peonies are now blooming. It's my favorite, some of my favorite flowers and my favorite time of year. And, um, and so, yeah, it's really nice to have blue skies and lots of lush green trees and bushes and grass coming in and new beginnings, right? It's that time. So, um, so tonight I'm going to talk for a little bit, um, uh, I, I have a topic I want to talk about, and then I'm going to open it up for some questions, do a little coaching before we finish. And, uh, let me just say that, so tonight's topic, I was thinking about what I wanted to speak about and, um, I happened to go into the library and I pulled out a copy of Stand Up For Your Life, which is the, let me see, Take Time, Life Makeovers, Stand Up was the third book that I wrote. And it's, um, where is it? It's right here. Stand up for your life. It's a very old photo. 
uh, a practical step-by-step -step plan to build inner confidence and personal power. Um, it's a really, I, I have to say, I'm really proud of this book. It really is about building self-esteem and confidence, courage, uh, learning to really own and use your power, not your ego, but your power, the sort of the essence of who you are to operate more from your higher self. And tonight I thought it would be, um, it would be fun to talk about how people hide their power and what to do about it. And there's four things that I want to talk about. I want to talk about um, three, well, three of the things I want to talk about are three things that people say, especially women. I'm speaking um, because so much of my audience are women. Um, I know that this is a very uh, uh, sort of predominant pattern for women uh, to methods for women to hide their power. I suspect that it's also true for some men maybe a lot of men and guys, you can let me know if it's true for you as well. So I want to talk about the three things that women say in order to hide their power. And then I want to talk about guilt, because that's another way that we hide our power, that we really prevent ourselves from being fully present in the world and fully um, just, you know, showing up in a powerful way. Guilt can be a real hindrance to that. So those are the, those are the four, the two things I want to talk about one of which is the three things that women say. So I'm going to start there, and then I'll come back in and look at your comments and um, take any questions that you might have. So first of all, um, one of the things, let me take a drink of water first of all. <laughs> take good care of my throat. Okay. So one of the first things I want to talk about uh, that women say um, that actually has them feel less confident and appear less confident. And that's the phrase, I think. So I want you to just begin to notice how often you use the phrase, I think, when in fact, you know, but you temper what you know by saying what you think. You know, I think I can do that project. I think I have room for a new client. Uh, I think I know what I'm doing when it comes to working on that book. Uh, you know, I think... I don't know, like we use, I think, a lot. And sometimes when I'm teaching workshops and I'll ask a woman a, a direct question and she'll say to me, well, yeah, I, I, think that's, I think that's true for me. And I'll say to her, well, do you think or do you know? Now, sometimes we're not sure, but a lot of the time we actually do know, but we use the phrase, I think, to sort of temper. It's almost like we do it to, um, to condition somebody to not have expectations of us. It's the same thing when somebody in a workshop will raise their hand and will stand up and say, you know, this might not make sense, or I might not be following you. And I very often will say, okay, hold on a minute. Don't qualify what you're going to say. Stand up on two feet, feel your hips, feel your body, you know, standing on the floor and just speak your truth instead of tempering it or minimizing it by using the phrase, um, I think. So just start to notice if that's something that you do and catch yourself. Don't beat yourself up. Don't give yourself a hard time. Just begin to notice, oh, do I say I think? Like just kind of, it reminds me of the old days when I used to belong to Toastmasters, the International Speech Club. It's where I got my beginning as a speaker. And we had to pay attention to how many times we said, um, which of course, the minute somebody asked me to notice how many times I said, um, I said, um, all the time <laughs> and I noticed it and I felt self-conscious, which then made me do it more. 
But that's okay. In the beginning, you just want to notice how often do you say I think. Now the other phrase that we use that disempowers us in some way is the phrase I'll try. I'll try is a great riding the fence phrase. The word try is a great riding the fence word. It means you don't have to make a decision. You get to kind of uh, dance around a decision or whatever the truth is. And, um, and I learned about this many years ago. I, wrote, I write about this in Stand Up For Your Life where my friend Stephen, who's a really terrific coach, his name is Stephen Clooney. So was many years ago, Stephen and I were together and we talked about scheduling dinner. And I said, yeah, I'll try to, um, I'll, I'll, I'll look at my calendar and yeah, let's, I'll, I'll try and see if we can get together. And he stopped me and he said, well, do you want to try or do you want to get together? Because I'd like you to just make a decision one way or the other. And I remember I felt a little annoyed. I felt kind of put on the spot, which was an indication that there was some truth to what he was saying. And it really stayed with me. And I started to pay attention to how often I said, I'll try. I'll try and do that for you. I'll try and get there on time. Um, yeah, I'll try and make that date when some part of me knows maybe I really don't want to do it, but I don't want to say I don't want to do it. So I started to pay attention and sure enough, I was using the word try a lot. And I began to just mentally ask myself before the word try would come out of my mouth, do you want to do this or don't you want to do this? Is it a yes or is it a no? And as a matter of fact, if you're saying I'll try, there's a good chance it's a no, but you just don't know how to say no directly. And trust me, when you learn to say no directly, people respect you and, and you feel more confident, you feel more empowered, you feel more embodied, and the people around you see you as more empowered and more confident and clear. And don't we love clear you know, communication with people? Don't we love being in relationships with people where we can count on them to tell us the truth, if they're available, if they're not, if they want to get together, if they don't. Uh, nine times out of ten, it doesn't even matter what the answer is. What matters is you get a decision, you get an answer, you get a straight answer. So you want to also begin to notice how often you say, I'll try, or you'll use the word try in workshops when people say, yeah, I'll try that. When I offer a suggestion of an exercise or um, something, a change, a behavior change that they might want to make. Yeah, I'll try that and I'll say to them, are you going to try it or are you going to do it? You get to choose, but just either say, yes, I'm going to do that or I'm not ready to do that yet. I'll think about it, but I'm not ready to do that yet. So start to notice when you're saying, I'll try. And then the last one, of course, is very popular and it's, I'm sorry. Begin to notice how many times you apologize for things you didn't do? Oh, I'm sorry. Now, I noticed this a lot. I remember many years ago when I was taking tennis lessons. I'm not a good tennis player. Let me just say, I, um, I played racquetball as a young woman, and I played a lot of racquetball, and I could not get rid of my racquetball arm and in a way that would allow me to play tennis. So I was not a good tennis player. And every time the person I was playing with would hit the tennis ball to me, I'd miss it and I'd say, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. It was such a habit. But then what I did is I used that particular exercise of, you know, lobbing a ball back and forth as a way to break myself of the habit of saying, I'm sorry. And today I even make a point when I'm responding to a request or an invitation or something via email, I, I notice my 
my uh, kind of natural inclination to want to say I'm sorry in an email. And I ask myself before I put it in the email, are you really sorry? Or is this just a no? And your truth is it's just a no, but you don't, you know, you don't feel bad about that. You just want to say no. And I will remove or not put down the phrase, I'm sorry. Sometimes I really am sorry that I'm going to miss something or that I'm not able to do something for somebody. Um, but a lot of times I'm not. It's just, I'm just not available or I'm just not able to do something or there's something I don't want to do. And I just want to say it clearly, graciously, directly, without beating around the bush or apologizing for it if I've not done anything wrong. So those are the three things. I think try or I'll try and I'm sorry. Uh, I see women especially using those phrases a lot along with things like being kind of giddy and little girlish in situations that really call for an adult to be there. Um, and so you just, the first step is to just become aware. And if it's something you do on a regular basis, you're going to notice it all the time now. Don't be mean to yourself. Be loving to yourself. And just, just begin to be aware. Do I say, you know, one of them? Am I using try a lot? Do I do use all three? I'm sorry. I'll try. Um, I think. Just begin to be aware, and then you can slowly start to change the language that you use. And you'll catch yourself, and that's great. And eventually, you'll just naturally begin to eliminate those phrases from your vocabulary when they're not accurate and they're not appropriate. And then the other thing I want to, do, I want to talk about in terms of uh, the fourth way that we hide our power has to do with guilt. Guilt, this sort of pattern, this behavior, this neural programming around feeling guilty, particularly when we take care of ourselves, when we make choices that really honor who we are and what we want, what we care about. This pattern of feeling guilty is really just that it's a habit of mind. It's a habit of thought. I noticed earlier today, uh, last summer, we had a major renovation project going on here at home. I've spoken about it before where we had the stone, we had some of the stone removed from the front of our house because the, the water was coming off the roof, coming behind the stone and rotting the walls, rotting the walls of the house. So we had to have stone removed, we had to have walls replaced. It was a horrible, loud, uncomfortable, endless project. And um, Pupan was still alive at the time. It was very disruptive to our lives. There were times where he was really scared because there'd be loud banging and I'd try to, you know, bring him to the back of the house or bring him upstairs in the bedroom with me, but it was just horrible. And the project, everything got repaired and now the stone has to be put on. And this morning I was out looking at the stone that was delivered and they're starting tomorrow morning at seven o'clock. And I started thinking about um, how bad I felt at poor Poupon had I known that he was sick back when we were under construction, I would have even postponed the construction for a bit or brought him somewhere else. And I started down this path of just feeling so guilty, like, oh, I can't believe what this poor little thing went through and then he dies in November. And I caught myself and I stopped it. And I said to myself, Cheryl, did you do anything wrong? And this is a question you wanna ask yourself when you start to feel guilty. Have you done something wrong? Did you do something with malicious intent, with the idea of hurting somebody, or just being irresponsible and uh, not being sort of conscientious about your behavior? 
did you intentionally do something wrong? That's the first question you want to ask. And of course, I asked myself, okay, did you know he was sick? No, of course I didn't. Um, did the repairs need to be done? Yes, they did. So I immediately said to myself, that train of thought, going back to that experience and what it might or might not have been like for your little cat is a complete waste of time. And it's going to have you feel disempowered, feel bad about yourself, and not make the best choices while you're dealing with construction people about getting this project done. So um, the next time you find yourself feeling guilty, oh God, you know, I needed a day to myself, but my sister asked me to help out with the kids and I decided I just, I just couldn't do it. I just needed to have a day to myself. And you start to feel guilty, ask yourself, did I do anything wrong? Did, did I do anything with malicious intent? Because if you did, you need to fix it. You need to clean it up, make amends, say you're sorry, get on the phone, whatever it is. You know, guilt is an important reaction. It's a conscientious reaction to having done something wrong, uh, something that you are aware of. And if that's the case, you want to fix it. You want to clean it up. But if you haven't done anything, if you haven't done something with malicious intent, then you need to stop yourself in your tracks when you begin to beat yourself up and remind yourself that, look, you know what? Sometimes guilt is a natural reaction to new behavior that takes care of us. And the best way to get comfortable with guilt is to get used to feeling it. Put your arm around it. I always say, just put your arm around it. Well, there you are, guilt. Must mean I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't do anything with malicious intent. This must mean that I'm actually making choices that support my self-care, that support my own truth. I'm making choices from a higher place, you know, from a place that really respects myself as a soul. And I'm going to feel uncomfortable for a little bit because it's new behavior, but I'm going to hang in there, let myself feel the discomfort, hold myself through the discomfort, and just continue with whatever it is I'm doing to take care of myself. And I promise you, What'll happen is this. It's not that guilt goes away. It's not that you'll never feel guilty again. I still feel guilty plenty of times when I take care of myself. I feel bad. I don't like disappointing people. I don't like letting people down. I don't like saying no if somebody really needs me. But I have to do all those things. So when I catch myself feeling that way, I just, I remind myself that, you know, listen, uh, this is a very quick way to, to sort of head down. My, my husband, Michael, calls it circling the drain. It's a quick way to circle the drain when you start to feel guilty for something that you didn't do wrong. And instead, I just remind myself that, you know what? The time between when I feel guilty and when I feel uh, released from that guilt gets shorter and shorter and shorter. So that's what you want. You want to practice just being with the uncomfortable feelings. You might want to call a friend and talk about it. But just notice, you will notice over time that when you start to feel guilty for things that you didn't do wrong, you'll catch yourself, you remind yourself you know, that you're a good person and you didn't do anything wrong, and the guilt will dissipate a lot quicker so that it'll really get shorter and shorter, and within five minutes you'll feel the guilt and then it will go away. Okay? So little tips for this week about reclaiming more of your power, paying attention to the language you use, paying attention to how you deal with guilt. These things are going to help raise your level of self-esteem, raise your level of con uh, uh, confidence. They're going to give you more courage. They're going to invite people to respect you more. 
because you come across as clear, directed, sincere, uh, not waffling at all, you know, very just empowered in your body speaking your truth. And that's what I want for you, is to be able to speak your truth, to take good care of yourself, and honestly to honor your relationships by being honest, by telling the truth, and not doing things out of guilt and obligation. That's not love. That's guilt and obligation. Very big difference. Okay, let's look at, um, I'm going to look at your comments here, and I'm going to invite you to uh, post a question, if you'd like, in the um, in the comment section. Let's see, and I see a question here from Elena, she says, and it can be, you know, it can be around uh, what I just talked about, guilt, the language you use, owning your power, or it might be something else. All right, so Elena says, I have finally found my perfect home to run retreats from a beach in New Zealand. Okay, that sounds like heaven, but, big but there, see the capital letters. How do I get over my fear of failing? I'm scared of presenting and people not getting what they need. Thank you for your beautiful, loving guidance. You're very welcome. So, um, so I'm assuming that you have this place already, that it's a home that you can also host retreats at. Um, you are going to fail at some things. So let's just say that right now. You're going to fail at some things. I fail at things all the time, Elena. I haven't died. I'm still here talking about it, right? Um, so you are going to fail. Sometimes you're going to set up a retreat and not enough people are going to want to come. Or you are going to stand up to give a presentation and your lips are going to stick to your teeth. <laughs> it's happened to me. You're going to feel nervous. This is just all normal. So what are some of the things you can do to make it more comfortable? I'd start small. A small retreat, maybe five people. And maybe you invite somebody to participate with you. You make it interactive, experiential, so that it's not you standing in front of a room with people, you know, listening to you. But you're sitting in a circle. I did this a lot in the beginning, and I still do it now, and I love it, where, you know, um, the retreats that I do twice a year are much smaller and I put everybody sort of in a theater style and I like to think of it as all of us sitting in a living room together. But in the beginning, I would just set a circle in the room and we would all um, sit together and I felt like I was sitting with a group of friends. And I would um, ask questions, I would interact with people so it didn't feel like I was the teacher talking at people. I was a woman facilitating something important and inviting people to participate in the conversation. So the one of the ways that we get over our fear is by doing things we're afraid of. You can't get over it before you do that. You can minimize it. Tapping is a great thing. I would encourage you to check out the tapping solution. Um, tapping can be a really wonderful way to manage the nerves before speaking. Um, and you need to worry when you say here, I'm scared of presenting and people not getting what they need. Well, first of all, you want to be very clear about what it is you're offering. And you might want to do some research by checking with people ahead of time to see what it is they need in relation to the topics that you're, you're speaking about. Do a little research, a little market research. And then you can always start your retreat by asking people to specifically identify the needs that they have that they would like to get met during the retreat and actually write them down and ask each of the people in the room to be responsible for getting their needs met. I do this all the time at my retreats. 
I say to the room, we are all adults here. And I invite all of you to take full responsibility for getting your needs met. So for example, if you're sitting in the middle of the room or in the back of the room and you can't hear me, please don't wait till the end of the retreat to tell me that you couldn't hear because I'm going to say, sorry, you should have said something. You know, you need to be a grown up and ask to get your needs met. So you can invite people ahead of time to, to do whatever they need to do to get their needs met, to speak to you and then let them know you'll do your best to meet their needs, but you may not always be able to do that. So take the pressure off of yourself. Think of it more as facilitating an experience for people. It's not your job to meet people's needs. It's their job to get their needs met. It's your job to just share your beautiful wisdom and guidance and advice and talents and gifts, whatever it is you might be sharing. And listen, you've got a place by the beach. You're already 75% there. You know, I'll tell you a little secret. Um, Elena, I do the retreats at the Stage Neck Inn at this beautiful beach. I mean, it's really, it's a gorgeous setting. And I already, I already know when people show up, they're already happy. And I haven't done a thing because it's just too beautiful to not be happy and to feel fulfilled. So it sounds like where you are, the, the location that you have is already going to meet some very important needs for people. So I say go for it as well as I see other people here are telling you to go for it as well. Okay, so good luck to you. I hope that works. Marianne says, hi Cheryl, I've always found the task of writing to be a difficult one, especially being a perfectionist. Ah, uh, yes. I've recently started my business in communications, of course, <laughs> and I'm getting a lot of requests to write corporate articles. I'm also a life coach, and when I write from the heart, from a connected place within, it flows easily enough. But in this corporate setting, I find it a bit harder to find the motivation to write. I'd appreciate your guidance. It's a really great question, Marianne, and let me just say this, first of all. Uh, when I had clients who were perfectionists and wanted to write, I would give them the assignment of keeping a journal, just even writing a paragraph in a journal every day, and not crossing the T's or dotting the I's, which would usually make them crazy. But it was a way to teach them to break this pattern of feeling like they needed to be perfectionistic with their writing. So you might want to try that as a little exercise. It can be really helpful. Second thing I wonder is, uh, well, two things I wonder. Do you really want to do this kind of writing for the corporate world. Make sure it's something you really want to do. Or are you just doing it because you were asked to and you're kind of excited that you're asked to, but when you think about it, you're just not really, it's just not your thing. Well, then maybe you don't want to do it. So maybe there is a different kind of writing that you want to do. So just give yourself permission to not do something you really don't want to do because writing is you know, it's a practice and you, you want to be able to practice. And if you hate it, and, and let me just tell you, I have a love-hate relationship with writing. I mean, I'm a writer, but there are some times where I'm like, oh, it's the last thing I want to do. But I always return to it. The other thing I want to say is this. It's very common, and I saw this a lot with uh, when I was working with coaches, coaching coaches over the years, it's very common for us to think that when we begin to write or to do coaching, for example, in a corporate setting, that we somehow have to remove the heart. But you actually don't. Here's the good news. The good news, um, Marianne, is that people in these corporate environments have hearts too. 
We all do. And so the kind of writing that you do might actually be exactly what they need. So pay attention to the stories that you're telling yourself in your head about the expectations of your audience before you actually check them out. I do a lot of writing from the heart. You all know, I mean, you, if you read my blogs, which I hope you do every week, you can subscribe at CherylRichardson.com. I'm always writing from the heart. I'm writing, I'm sharing wisdom. I'm sharing my life experience, what I'm learning as I go along, trying to live a conscious, authentic life. And I have plenty of people in corporate America who read my blog and really get a lot out of it. So, um, so I really encourage you to just think about those things. Are you doing the kind of writing you really want to be doing? Are you removing the heart when you actually need to keep it in? And, um, and you know, are you, what are you doing to um, gently and lovingly uh, soften the perfectionist in you? And the reason I say that is this, some people, for some people, their perfectionism is a gift. They have the gift of refinement, of attention to detail, of being able to just make things right so that they're elegant and beautiful. My husband Michael has that gift. That's why our house is very detail-oriented because he has an eye for detail that brings beauty to what he does. The problem is when he gets stuck in his perfectionism, then he doesn't get anything accomplished. And that's where, as a team, when we were building the house, I could move things along. Right now he's finishing a book and he really struggles with his perfectionism. When perfectionism becomes a problem, whenever we're doing any kind of art, we take away that it sucks the joy out of it. And I want you to enjoy this as well as be successful at it, Marianne. So I hope that's helpful to you. Okay. Um, yeah, Jerry says, also women use the word little a lot. It is disempowering. Oh, it was just a little. Yes, you're right. You're absolutely right. Um, let's see. Um, so Susie says, I need to talk to a friend about something she did that hurt me, and then I became angry. How best to create an exchange to listen to each other with love? I feel fear bringing this up to her, but I have to. Okay, so you said she did something that hurt you, and then you became angry. So I'm going to assume, Susie, that you want her to know that your feelings were hurt and that you're sorry that you got angry, let's say. So the first thing is, I would recommend that you find somebody other than your friend to have a practice conversation with. So let's make sure that you have vented in whatever way you've needed to so it's no longer a hot button or a hot issue for you. And then you can um, practice with somebody just having the conversation. I know it sounds kind of silly or it might feel awkward. It's really smart to practice tough conversations with somebody else before we have them with friends. And when you can get into a loving place, I really want you to imagine getting into um, sort of a gracious and loving place. What you need to say to your friend is, I need to talk to you about something and it's, it, it's uncomfortable for me and I'm kind of scared. Like be vulnerable in that way. If this friend is worthy of your vulnerability, if she's highly critical or mean or toxic in any way, no, don't do that. But I'm gonna assume that she's a good friend. And then you can just say to her, you know, when you said X, I heard it like this, and my feelings were hurt. 
And I noticed that when my feelings got hurt, I got angry and I jumped. You know, I, I, um, I just reacted with anger instead of taking a deep breath, stepping back, which is not easy to do. I just want to say, Susie. Um, but I noticed that I got angry and I wanted to clean that part of it up and also just let you know that when you said such and such, it just really hurt me. And um, I would love it if you just wouldn't do that again. And then keep your mouth shut. Don't say anything more. Don't over explain. Don't open it for debate. Don't backpedal. Don't go on and on and on. Just keep it to that so that regardless of what your friend says, you can return to I just wanted you to know, as uncomfortable as it is, I just wanted you, you know, our, your friendship's important to me. So I want to be honest. And I was hurt when you said this. And she might say, well, that wasn't my intention. Great. I, I, I'm sure it wasn't your intention. I just needed to tell you how I felt. And I wanted to apologize for the angry way that I reacted. I reacted when I should have, like, just taken a step back, taken a deep breath, and um, even asked for some time to process, but I didn't know enough to do that. And hopefully I'll, I'll know enough next time. If not, I'll come to apologize again. But I just wanted things to be clear between us so that our friendship stays strong. Because what is unspoken between two people begins to erode the relationship. So you're really smart, Susie, in recognizing you need to have a conversation. Good luck with that, too. Um, yeah, Heidi says, any tips for how to let go of a business project I totally love, but hasn't turned out to be profitable? Well, it's a really brave question, Heidi, because a lot of times people will stay doing, uh, you know, stay in businesses that aren't making money or that are losing money um, just because they started it and they don't want to stop. And sometimes as a coach, some of the difficult uh, conversations I've had to have with clients is by telling them that, you know, this really isn't a business, it's a hobby, and it's losing you money. So I wonder if you can take what it is you love about what you're doing and maybe do it on the side or maybe do it as a hobby or something for fun. So, for example, if you're a painter and you love to paint but you're not able to sell your paintings, you can paint on the side for fun, maybe give your paintings as gifts or you know, frame them and put them up in your home. Um, but I would really encourage you if a business, uh, you know, I always say if a business isn't profitable three out of five years, the IRS here in the States considers it a hobby. If it loses money three out of five years, it's considered a hobby. So um, you want to make sure you have a consistent source of income coming in. And you, um, in order to do that, you might need to get a job and then do the part that you love on the side. All right. Um, so let's see. I'm going to wrap it up. Um, I'm just going to look real quickly through here. Um, yeah, Maria says, um, it's normal. Is it normal to be a little too direct when initially changing behavior and speaking up for yourself? Yeah, that's a really good point, um, Maria. When we learn to speak up for ourselves, sometimes some people, when they're defensive or they're scared, they get really direct, like overly direct, and it's normal. Remember, you can always apologize. So when you're telling the truth or when you're having a tough conversation, when you're speaking up for yourself, always remember that you're going to make mistakes sometimes. Sometimes I've been way too direct. Sometimes I'm still too direct, and I need to go back and apologize. 
Um, sometimes I'm not direct enough and I need to go back and apologize. So yes, you just really want to cultivate sensitivity in terms of how you come across and how you, um, how you, uh, you know, communicate with people. Uh, when in doubt, just be vulnerable, tell the truth, and say less than you normally would. Okay. Um, all right. Hi, Susan. I'm glad you're here. And uh, yeah, Elena, I'm good. I'm glad that that's helpful. And Julie, I'm glad my retreat is your dream. And I, Julie, I don't know where you live, but here's what I would like to do for you, Julie. I would like to give you my retreat as a gift. How about that? How about we just make your dream come true right now? <laughs> um, every now and then, I like to do that for one person uh, at the retreat. And Julie, Patricia, you are that person. So um, I would love for you to send an email to Nicole at CherylRichardson.com. Our next retreat is in October, at the end of October. Uh, you might be able to, I think it might be on the um, website, but just send an email to Nicole. I can't do this for anybody else. We always get lots of emails saying, could I have that too? This is just for Julie. Julie, send an email to Nicole and I will invite you as my guest to come to my next retreat. There you have it. Dream done. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thank you so much for being here with me. I really appreciate it a lot. I look forward to talking with you next week. And um, in the meantime, remember, own your power, speak up, no more I think, no more I'm sorry, no more I'll try, stand two feet, feel the hips, feel the, feel the heart, speak your truth, and all will be well. Okay, everybody, thank you, have a wonderful week, take care.